Hi, I'm Rachna. I'm Natalie. And I'm Christy. And welcome to the Triage Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Triage. I'm Natalie. And I'm Christy. And we're so excited to have you back on another episode with us today. And this is our Social Determinants of Health series. So what we are going to be doing for the next few weeks is talking about how economic stability, neighborhood and physical environment, education, food, community, and our healthcare system all interconnect and affect one another while all affecting our health, um, our physical, emotional, mental, spiritual health. And we're also going to be talking a great deal about how along with those factors, race, gender, sexuality, ability, socioeconomic status, and other personal factors play into these societal factors and affect us as humans overall. So today we're going to actually be talking about education, which is a big buzz topic right now um, with everything going on with the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of talk has been going on about, are we going back to school in the fall? And it is so divided right now I would say um so many people are nervous so many people want to go back I would say uh, the people who are speaking the loudest about going back are the people who just want to prove a point but that's Mm -hmm. not the majority the majority I would say of people who want to go back are concerned for their children's education but here um I could speak for myself I think we need to focus on the children's safety and health first um that's personally how I feel about it and as well as the children, the teachers, the custodian workers, the bus drivers, um, the different lunch ladies and lun- uh, lunch ladies and cafeteria staff who work at the school and lunch supervisors, like all these people make up a school and they're all at risk if we go back to school in the fall. So that's just personally how I feel about it. Um, and there's also so that's um more talking about grades k through 12 i would say in preschool as well um and christy do you want to talk about a little bit what's going on with our higher education right now yeah so obviously this pandemic is affecting everything like natalie was talking about with k through 12 but a lot of conversation is also about what's going on at the university level with both undergraduate students and graduate students Many big universities, especially universities with very large endowments, like universities like Harvard, um, other Ivy League institutions, other private schools, and even state schools like our alma mater, Rutgers, um, they are making most classes online, or some schools have announced that they are completely online, at least for the first semester, but tuition hasn't gone down. It's actually gone up because tuition always goes up most of the time. Um, and maybe there have been cuts with some campus fees um, or some housing. But the fact that tuition is the same for um, uh, an education that is mostly hybrid or online is making a lot of students upset because they don't feel like they're getting the same level of education as they would be in the classroom. And also it brings up conversations about accessibility and the ableist um way of how we educate and how we set up education systems and we'll get into that later but you know a lot of students have wanted to have online classes or have had to take time off of school because they weren't 
receiving an accessible education, but they were told they couldn't do that. But now you see during a pandemic that universities have somehow made it work where they can receive an education through a computer. So it's just bringing up a lot of issues that have already been going on on college campuses this whole time. And a lot of complaints have been coming from people who do have money, who do have Wi-Fi. Um, but there are so many students out there who are housing insecure, are in housing that is safe for them. And, you know, college is a very big safe haven. It's the first time a lot of students feel like themselves throughout their whole life. And now that's being ripped away from them and they're somehow supposed to um, receive a top-notch education in their home when they don't necessarily have access to Wi-Fi or have access to food at home and private spaces in order to uh, contribute to class or give presentations. So a lot of the issues that we talked about in our last episode and will be in the future, it's all tied to to the community around college campuses. And also, a lot of people who work at college campuses are losing their jobs. Um, Meanwhile, tuition is going up um, and all of that. So it's just sad. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, um, early childhood education and higher education are two components of the social determinants of health. And based off the chart that we've been using um, to provide us a little bit of visual aid about the different components of different social determinants of health, um, and we're going to share that with you on our Instagram at the triage. Um, the other components of education include literacy, language. That's a huge accessibility factor is um, the language that um, students speak and the language is that um, professors speak and also just communication between the two and vocational uh, training as well. So the quality, um, the quality of education that students are getting from their instructors as well. And um, yeah, Christy brought up an incredible point about the Wi-Fi accessibility and also library accessibility as well. And I think both of those, because the library, exactly as Christy was saying, um, would provide students that safe haven of having a quiet place to study. And that's not just like Uh, That's not just like a want, that's a need, especially for a lot of students with learning disabilities or um, students who are also differently abled just in um, really any way. And then also, too, what kind of plays into that is not having access to different amenities, such as the physical disability services building, um, like the dining hall, like Christy was saying, for food, the learning centers, tutors, like Things that some students learn, every student learns differently. That's something that I'm a huge believer of. And for some students, they'll be able to adapt really quickly into online learning. And that's incredible. Um, That's really important. That's the goal. For other students, they need that that in-person instruction and just like not pushing out these resources to make them as accessible as possible, such as disability services or learning centers um, or ensuring that students are receiving food and just raising tuition just blind like uh, just raising tuition like just quietly is very frustrating Mm -hmm. and it's it even education when you think about it it's not even just the students or everyone in the system that's affected it's also students going to school was is a way for a lot of parents to go to work and to get that separation and ensure that 
their children are learning at the quote-unquote correct speed, which that really isn't a real thing. It's just, you know, created by our society. But it was a way for parents to go have time to work. And, um, you know, there are after-school activities that would help parents who had to work longer hours. Um, Or, you know, some parents don't know how to speak English or how to teach a student how to read. And that's what teachers were doing. But now that everyone is is made to be at home um that you lose that um that ability and and i understand that's why a lot of people are upset that kids probably won't be going back into the school system but again like you said natalie it's all about safety and unfortunately i think now um, physical safety has to come above the quality of education that a student is getting yeah and and it's just really sad no it's so sad because this a recent um statement from the cdc was released saying that we could we could knock this thing out and this thing being the pandemic in like six to eight weeks we just all have to wear masks and like there's people coughing on other people's faces like in pharmacies just to prove a point that this is all a hoax or um a lot of gatherings down the shore, I say down the shore, I live in New Jersey, um, have been happening, like, spreading, like, just a wild amount of people with no masks, party hopping, um, going to bars, um, which, personally, in the normal times, I love doing that. That's, like, one of my favorite parts of summer is enjoying the time outside, being with friends, you know, drinking responsibly if you're above the age of 21, like, just, you know, living life, enjoying life, but now is not the time, and that's something that's really hard, because it is all adding to the spread of this virus, and I was talking about it uh, with Christy on the phone earlier today, and you brought up a really incredible point, Christy, not to speak for you, but when you were saying that the government is saying that this is okay, so it's, part of it is, you know, an individual choice, and part of it is getting that comfort that's completely ill-based because it's all about making money and not about our physical safety but that comfort that is giving being given to us by the government by saying yeah it's safe for these businesses to reopen and you know only have to wear masks outside in a crowded area when that's just not backed by science at all science is saying to limit your time um outdoors in terms of leaving your home as much as as much as you are able to do yeah so and it goes it's like in terms of education and especially k through 12 like if kids are going back to school and they have to wear masks but some of them don't some of them have parents who don't believe in masks or you know they're kids like kids don't always listen and that's part of being a kid but now you're making teachers and supervisors and janitors and everything in between or everything involved in a school you're making them now be kind of like security guards in a way or like public health officers when like that's not their job they're not trained to do that and they're also not paid to do that yeah they're not receiving hazard pay i'm sure yeah and it kind of goes into our first you know little topic in this category is like curriculum and budgeting It, it comes from the top down and it's it's paid for by property taxes, which goes into our last episode about environment and about gentrification and about redlining. But I mean, I come from a family of educators and 
my mom is a teacher, my grandmother is a teacher, and I have a bunch of teachers in my family. The classrooms that they set up, the beautiful um, boards that they set up, the beautiful name tags that they set up for the kids, um, a lot of the fun activities, they pay for out of their own pocket. And that's everywhere. And they taught in very nice school districts. So I can't even imagine what it's like in districts that have even less funding. But now we're in an economic crisis and we're asking teachers to come in, but also, you know, it's an economic crisis and now they're going to have to stock up their classrooms with the money that they have when really it should be coming from the school. And just thinking about curriculum, like, and this is more when it comes, I mean, it, your education shapes you from when you're younger, but it goes into, you know, how we learned about Thanksgiving and how we learned about the colonies and how we learned about racism and the civil rights movement like we thought okay in the 60s we have the civil rights movement and here we go we're in a post-racial society it's gone it's done um but that's not what happened yep people are still fighting for columbus day to be changed and it is changed in some um some different parts of the u.s but fighting for columbus day to be changed to indigenous people's day because there was a genocide. It was a genocide that's still going on today. We talked about it a little bit last uh, last time, and um, how we, um, how America and Americans took resources from indigenous people, and we're taught that it was gifted, that it was given to us with open hands when it was stolen from indigenous people. It wasn't a matter of if it was ours to take, it was stolen. Um, and that, and that's a hundred percent true. It's all, um, shaped. It's all shaped in a light to paint the U S in a positive light. And of course there are, there are delicate ways to go about it, but thinking critically is such an important skill. And if you're not teaching your young students to be like, to be critical of everything, then how does that make them good civic, like good civil leaders and good, you know, thinking independently? Um, it all plays into a fight. It all connects, I think. And um, yeah, absolutely. And just curriculum budgeting definitely go hand in hand. I mean, think about all the books we had to read in school. They're so dated now. Like the Great Gatsby was, was talking about the 1920s and it was written in like the 30s or the 40s, I believe. Um, there are so many incredible books, like, written by people other than white men, um, that could share a little bit more about an authentic American experience, but then just the same point of view over and over again, um, that have sometimes really harmful elements, such as racism, or homophobia, or ableism, or sexism, but just normalized within the text as well. There's so many different... uh, I could think of so many different books off the top of my head that, um, that don't allow that, that condemn that, that speak against that. I mean, um, one book that comes to mind is called A Very Large Expansive Sea, and it's by Tahara Mafi, and I just love that book. Um, it's honestly on the, um, 200, I would say within the two to 300 page range, so it's um, a contemporary story. It's fictional, but it's it's written based off personal experience about post 9-11, how a young Muslim girl 
just had to keep moving schools. Um, her parents were very successful and it caused them to move around a lot, I believe. I haven't read this book in about six months, but I absolutely loved it because it just spoke to the authentic student experience, as Muslim student experience. Um, from what I can understand, I'm not a Muslim woman, but I just thought that it was very eye-opening and a lot of young women have talked about how that book just made them feel seen and respected and heard and I thought that was so beautiful and like that's a book that should be incorporated in schools talking about something that so many students as it's post 9-11 and that's within our that's within so many of our, our lifetimes that's just that's a book that students can exactly connect it reminds to. me of the kite runner and how I read that senior year so I was 17 I just turned 17 was about to turn 18 in a few months was just reading about the perspective of what it's like to grow up basically outside of the United States and how to what it's like to be an immigrant and what you deal with over here and like that was my last probably the last book I read in high school and I'm like where was this a few years ago and honestly a lot of the stories are centered around white voices and around white saviorism so we did talk about race in our books um, like in To Kill a Mockingbird, um, in a few other books, but a lot of it, a lot of the stories painted the, the white character, mostly white male character, as the savior or the hero in the story, and that's important to think about too. But to, um, to kind of go beyond curriculum and the books we read and thinking more holistically of education, especially in K through twelve, and how what it means to get to you know, uh, a higher, an institution of higher education, extracurriculars outside of school, whether it's even just sports and the access that, um, that kids have to sports. I remember budgets were cut in my school district where we had to pay extra to join a club or pay extra to join a sport. Um, and I, if you don't have the money to put up for that, you can't join that. And being in a sport, being a captain of a sport, doing five clubs, being a president of a club, and all of that stuff, that's what gets you into college. And if you have to work after school, and you have to put food on your table and contribute to your family, and or you have to help tutor your siblings or help tutor your parents, like you're not going to have time to partake in a sport or in an extracurricular or be president of five clubs. It's just right. not going to happen. And how are or you supposed to get... you're going to do that. Yeah. And you're not going to do well in school or you're going to not sleep and you're not going to yes. probably eat well. And then yes. it's just going to be a cycle. And how are you, like exactly what you said in the beginning of this, how are you supposed to get into that dream college? I mean, so many incredible students do it each year. But we're saying, because it's not fair. The system is is rigged against lower economic students or students of different backgrounds because exactly like you said, there's so many different more responsibilities that fall like on these students and um some and exactly what you said about some students not having the budget like some some schools might have to just cut them all together as well um because of just poor funding the funding for the school will go completely into something else um like building a field or something and like I know like that happened with my school we like just spent so much money like building this field this uh football field and it was like for, okay, so great. Now we have a football field that's harmful to the environment because it's not real grass. It's 
fake, it's turf, it's fake grass, it's very harmful. And like all of that money could have been put into getting new textbooks or investing in different clubs or, um, you know, funding students traveling for different scholarship reasons. And talking about college as well, um, different factors, you know, for either younger students listening or students that have been, or people that have gone to college and been through that process, you know, you want to reflect. A lot of different things go into a college application, not just extracurriculars, but it is all rooted in privilege, I would say. And um, this is something, some, some thoughts that we have come up with together, Christy and I. I mean, AP courses, they cost so much money to take that test. Um, and, also, and some affluent schools pay for it. Really? I didn't even know that. Yeah, I didn't know about this either. My school did not do that. No. But <laughs> I've heard of others, other schools that do that. Like, kids could take probably, like, 10 AP courses and then don't have to pay for the test. There you go. So students can just walk into the test, which, again, if you can get college credit, I don't blame you. I do the same thing. Because you could sign up for any test. For people that don't have background about AP courses, usually a school will create a course around the test from College Board. They'll create a course around it to prepare you as like test prep for the entire year. Um, usually teaching a quote-unquote like core part of a, a education, so a science or a math or a literacy or history component. Um, but you don't have to be enrolled in that course to take the test. Anybody could take the test. You're just more equipped by taking a year's worth of prep than maybe prepping by yourself for a few months. Um, and not all schools can, like, can afford to probably buy the licenses for these courses. And also, like we were just talking about, students cannot always individually afford um, paying for them. They do have waivers, but I know you have to qualify, um, which is always just putting an arbitrary line just smack in the middle of, you know, your income or something. Um, like just because you surpass that range doesn't mean that you are not struggling to afford it as much as anybody else. And the same thing with the same thing with community college courses. You know, you could take a community college course probably at any age, I would say, which sounds wild. But, you know, you hear stories about little student prodigies at like age 11 or something like graduating high school and stuff. And, you know, you could that costs money. That costs thousands of dollars. It's just the price of a college course. It costs thousands of dollars. SAT tutoring, ACT tutoring. Oh my gosh, I could not. People start this when this. they're like in eighth grade. Yes, in eighth grade. Yes, um, and of course you're going to do better because what is the SAT and ACT? It's a game. Yep. It's not even indicative of your. I mean, I'm sure there's some sort of correlation because I do know really smart people who did really well, but I also know extremely smart people who didn't do well. And you know what? I think I'm smart. Did I do well on this? No, I did not. not yeah. Really. No. And <laughs> I remember just wanting tutoring so bad, and I just I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford it. And I um, I took both the SAT and the ACT. I took the ACT once and the SAT three times. Those were all testing fees. You're charging me to take a test that I have to take, and then you're charging me to send those scores to schools. So if I'm interested in four schools, I got to pay that fee four times. I mean, it's so, like, classist. And, and um, it's just, yeah. it's upsetting because, like, I remember my mom was amazing. I mean, she's a teacher. She was getting her master's while I was in school, 
and she was involved in Project Graduation, which was this event to keep kids in high school from, you know, drinking and all this stuff after graduation and, like, all have a community right after school. Anyway, one thing they did through this program was set up, like, a few weekends where they'd make... um, They'd make SAT tutoring or SAT workshops either free, I forget, or a a lot less money than someone would have to pay to get a private tutor on their own. But that's set up by parents of the school. That's not set up by the school. It's not set up by the budget. It's based on volunteering of parents, and not everyone has access to that. That's a great privilege that I had to go to a school where parents were able to contribute in that way, and and it was you know, welcomed by the school. And when I think about extracurriculars, AP classes, community college courses during high school, and SAT and ACT tutoring, those factors are very indicative of scholarship money to schools. When schools give out scholarships to people, it's centered around, were you a leader in school? Were you? What did you get on your AP scores? What is your SAT score? I remember at Rutgers, I'm pretty sure like the in order to get some sort of scholarship, like initially when you entered school, it was very SAT or ACT score based or GPA based. If you don't have the money or the time to be studying or contributing to those different factors, how are you going to get a scholarship and then make school more accessible for you? Yeah, it's just honestly that really, that sums up just getting into college. And now we're going to talk about paying for college as an experience, which this country has created this broken feedback loop where if you don't have a higher degree of education, there's this, you know, this myth that you can't get a job, which isn't exactly true. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen many people. I need to pull up this people, tweet about student debt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Wait, I know which one you're going to pull up and you need to do that right now. Um, but while Christy's doing that, yes, while she's doing that, I'm going to just explain the breakdown of college for, again, our younger listeners, if you're interested in college and our older listeners, if you want to just reminisce about that beautiful uh, factor about it, um, applications cost money, tuition, obviously food, room and board, like, like what? like you're trying to recruit students from across the country and, you're just charging this obscene amount of money like for room and board when some of these these um, residence halls are asbestos filled don't have proper ventilation are infested with bugs I mean I'm not even being dramatic I've seen all of that like at Rutgers schools myself firsthand I've seen all of it I remember I remember explicitly them telling students on College Avenue, just don't tap the ceilings and the asbestos won't fall and you won't inhale it into your lungs. <laughs> don't hang things. Yeah, don't, don't hang things up. Yeah, when, like, meanwhile, like, I found decorating your room is so <laughs> essential to, like, you expressing yourself. Please, read us the tweet. The tweet, it's, I can't even read this number. I'm really bad at reading large numbers. Like, I ran um a fundraising organization in college and I would like have to announce and I could not do it because I just it, my brain doesn't work that way but it was a tweet from student at debt crisis org about the student debt crisis and it said on July 16th today the student debt crisis reached one trillion something 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 and someone quote tweeted it and said glad to be part of something so huge <laughs> I saw that <laughs> I literally saw that. <laughs> and it's so funny. Oh. But the, what you, everything you just said about, like, housing, 
um, you know, what really stuck out to me was colleges going across the country to welcome children and teens and and, uh, parents and everyone who wants to go to college. Why do you think state schools especially want people from out of state to come to their university? Because out of state tuition costs so much more. And the state schools want people from either internationally or from other states to come to their institution because then they make more money and they try to do it and say, oh, we have we have representation from all 50 states and this many countries. And like, it's great to build a diverse student body. But in reality, it's really not about that. It's about making more money. Yep. I remember I'm not going to say what school it is, but I know it is a Big Ten school. And I don't know if it's still true, but they touted how they kept their in-state tuition so low they froze in-state tuition for like a few years but the caveat there was that their ratio of international to in-state students was like astronomical where they were raising you know tuition for those international students or out-of-state students and letting more in to keep that in-state tuition down so don't believe everything you hear yeah and they're definitely using that as a recruitment tool about the in-state tuition being lower I'm sure even though they're keeping that ratio down um because they turn students away so students are wasting money on all these applications oh my goodness it just gets me so angry how it's just all a cash grab and then you know yeah it's centered on and like I made a mistake earlier where I was like oh kids from across the country whatever schools are so centered on the fact that it's people who come straight from high school when in reality that's not everyone who goes to college like so so many people are going back to college once they've worked for a few years for 20 years or however long it's people who had children and want to come back and go to school it's so many different people are going to school and i mean we saw this through like working with orientation i wasn't an orientation leader natalie was but it's like really schools are trying to make, you know, entering into school more um, more inclusive in acknowledging that. But it's going to be a long journey to make universities more inclusive of every type of student who who is attending. Because when you think about it, a lot of classes are during the day because most students can attend during the day. But in reality, there are a lot of people going back to school who work all day and can only go at night so yeah it's just it's interesting obviously there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all but we just have to think about that and I'm also thinking about as well when we were talking about building up a resume for for college to get into college to apply to college um that happens I just realized like that happens at the college level for the workforce where why do I need a resume to get a job. Like it sounds really silly, but like let me let me let me explain my thought process. I'm going to school to become qualified in, you know, the core studies that the school's offering and my major. Why do I have to present these these my full page resume when I should be focusing on school? Like what if I need to work? Like I understand intern experience. I understand intern experience, but like I 
I took on so many different roles at school, and Christy, I know you did as well, and while I loved so many of them, like, that's how Christy and I met was through student government, and that was, those were two different roles that we held there, and like Christy mentioned, I was an orientation leader, um, all within Rutgers University, which, honestly, I was really underpaid in that role, and Chris, Chris, neither Christy, Christy nor I were paid justly for student, I wasn't paid at all for student government, we just weren't compensated fairly for basically being student advocates for the school and trying to reform it as much as possible. So that's a whole nother conversation, just student labor, which is unjust in itself in terms of how we're compensated. But like that is so classist in itself because some students just need to work and whether that's just tutoring students, which is incredible or, you know, working, um, just having different roles, maybe in a restaurant industry or, um, you know, being uh, being like a, a sales associate or a fa- like a fashion merchandise associate at a store, like those aren't so like glamorous all the time. But if that's what pays the bills, like that's what th- like that's amazing. Like that's what pays the bills. And like you're coming out of school with this amazing degree, and then well, you're not as qualified for this job because you didn't do this program. And you weren't a part of this, like, scholarship program, or you, you didn't this hold this, society. yeah, be a, be a big, big wig in this, you know, this big internship experience. Like, wasn't my, your degrees, like, isn't that enough? And, like, the answer is no for right now. Hopefully, you know, we change that in the future, but it's not enough. And that's so classist in itself, too. Exactly. And, like, I love what you said about how classes should be enough, because they really are. Like, at least... What I studied, I studied health administration and I minored in digital communication, information, and media. We built portfolios. Like if you worked all throughout school and just did your work in school, you did your assignments, you came out with a portfolio with podcasts, with videos, with a website you made. For my major, you came out with, we did like consulting projects, we did case studies, we did marketing projects for health institutions. Like you have a resume and I mentor so many kids who graduated with my degree and I always tell them I'm like you did a presentation like at least three times a week in each class you did teamwork you have infographics that you've made that you can put on your LinkedIn on your your resume you did x y and z like you come out of university with with uni um (laughs) you come out with with so much expertise but we're just not made to think that that is value to add on a resume we have to be taught to do that and I know my major really tried to like take those pieces of class and no that's amazing class I really all like that about mentality. leadership and about shaping a resume and interviewing and every major should have that and that's why I was at my first role in, in at my company and sorry I'm getting too out of it but they really favored people from li- liberal art schools and while I understand that and if you study that I get it but I was looked down on because of what I studied and what I did. But in reality, my classes taught me what I needed to know for school and for my job. So it's like there's even this um, elitism within outside of school about what you studied or about what kind of school you went to. Did you go to a private school? Did you go to a big 10 school like we did? Did you go to an Ivy League school? Like after a few years, it doesn't matter. But right when you're trying to get a job, it does. And I'm sorry, but not everyone is on that equal playing field in terms of what school they have access to. 100%. 
And, um, <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. It's just, it's different. It's, like, different layers of inequality. Yeah. Um, study abroad. Yes, that's such Sorry, a Sorry, I don't want to get over this point. Like, yeah. I didn't study abroad. Did you study abroad? No, I couldn't afford no, it. right? Yeah, I couldn't afford it. And I am looking into grad schools, and so many of them are asking, like, do you have any experience, like, living abroad or studying abroad? And I'm like... No, I didn't. That's such like a I couldn't afford to take a summer off or take American a semester off. That's such an American privilege as well. I feel. Yeah. Um, I mean, we do have our fair share of international students, um, but I say that because like the U.S. passport just makes so many different places accessible, where that's not the case for other countries. Um, yeah. And it's even like degrees that people get, mostly like adults who come over to the United States, they'll come over as doctors, as physicians, as engineers, as scientists, and then they come to the U.S., and the U.S. is like, "Mm, no, I don't accept your credentials. Um, Oh, you were an engineer in your country? Oh, here, no, you're not welcome in that field. And not that jobs like taxi driving and food service workers is, um, is not the same. I think, especially we've seen during this pandemic, um, essential workers are so are the backbone of society. So I think if you treat a taxi driver or a food service worker different than you treat like the CEO of a company, that's something that you need to really reevaluate about yourself. But so not downplaying the fact that some people are taxi drivers, but the fact that people are in another country and they've studied so hard and were practicing medicine, and then the U.S. doesn't welcome them with that same sort of. Um, caliber it's just i mean we go and study abroad and it's like ooh, i studied a new country here on my instagrams but then people try to come here and like trump tried to do a few weeks ago no you're not welcome here no oh no you're welcome here because international students give so much money to the university right so it's like right hmm. it's like what do you really value these human beings for and it all comes back definitely comes back to money which is so and health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just... mm-hmm. Which is the core focus. Yeah. And it's like in school we re- like I we loved Rutgers and like Rutgers obviously is not perfect but they really have tried like different things like the student food pantry like like we talked about like and what this whole podcast is about is about how it's all encompassing and like your access to education like some people are doing the clubs they're going to class they're doing all this stuff but they can't afford food. And, like, to eat at the dining hall is so expensive. Sororities and fraternities, they have scholarships that they give out. They really help you get jobs, but they are, like, thousands and thousands of dollars. Per semester. you have to have time to go to all of them. Per semester, yeah. Like, and you have to go to all of those events in order to get into one. Yes. Over the weekend. Well, at least at Rutgers, it was over the weekend. If you have to work, what are you going to do? Get three weekends off of school to rush a sorority? Like... I don't know. I mean, uh, um, weekends off of work. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's all fair points. And um, something also that Rutgers... <laughs> no, it's... Honestly, we... I feel like this is going to... This and the healthcare factor are going to be the two that we relate to the most because we are fresh alumni of Rutgers. So we have so many personal experiences that we could talk about where we have... a. Uh, for lack of a better word, experience this unjust uh, behavior. But um, something else we want to talk about 
um, that's so important to acknowledge is that Rutgers um, released a book, I believe it was called Scarlet, was it called Scarlet and Black? Yeah, um, and it was, the whole purpose of the book was to acknowledge that the roots of Rutgers were physically built by slaves, and the, um, some really prominent, like I'll use that word very loosely, um, founders of the university, including Colonel Henry Rutgers, owned slaves, um, and the entire point of this book was to create dialogue, to acknowledge the wrongness of the past, and to, you know, pave a better way for the future, but now, um, so that, that book came out either in 2017, 2018, Christy and I were both students at the school and they were doing a lot of incredible um, things together. Like they renamed a lot of things. Yes. But it came out this year that some more buildings were named after um, slave owners, um, some, some residential halls mostly. And I know that they were planning to knock them down, which is probably why they kind of didn't do anything about it. But in my opinion, that invalidates a lot of the work, the hard work that they put into, you know, starting dialogue with different uh, prominent members of, um, like, different prominent black members of, like, the academia, like, community have come, traveled to Rutgers and had really amazing conversations and created different, um, just, like, important plans of action to move forward. It undervalues that because it's, like, why were you hiding the fact that, um, was Hardenberg Hall one of them? I feel like, yeah, like, that's, like, where so many different first-year students live. Like, it's just a big first-year hall. Like, I feel like if you go to Rutgers, you know about Hardenburg Hall. There's some, they have a lot of different residence halls on campus, so I, I don't know at all off the top of my head. But it's also, there's classrooms there. Yeah, there's also classrooms on the bottom floor as well. So even if you've never heard of Hardenburg as a residence hall, I've had three classes in Hardenburg. Um, and I lived on a different campus. So many classes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So why wouldn't you bring that up in 2017? They're just, it just... It's like part of it is definitely um, performative activism. It's definitely performative activism. And, you know, intention doesn't, you know, trump impact there. Um, so, I, I mean, that's just something to think about. And that's just Rutgers. I mean, we're hearing about it in schools all over the, every college all over the country because higher education was founded, like, well, not, well, not founded necessarily, but established in this country centuries ago. An important point about Rutgers, in case our listeners out there don't know, it's one of the original colonial colleges. So it's Rutgers, William & Mary, and then the rest of the Ivy League schools. And Rutgers really, part of why Scarlet and Black was so important, I think it may have came out in 2016 or, yeah, 2017, because it was in tandem with our 250th anniversary of being a university. So all of these universities are built off of racism and physically built by slaves and took away indigenous land so um and a really amazing group has put together different um, webinars and different um, infographics so we'll link their instagram and their information in the bio but it's called are you past present and they are not only talking about what Rutgers was built on but what a lot of other universities around that time and around the area of mostly the east coast or the 13 original colonies um they really give a lot of information about that so we'll and we'll link scarlet and black but don't buy it off of amazon right yeah <laughs> shop independent bookstores um and speaking about sources of learning um wait actually hold on go ahead christy 
one thing we just want to leave on, which it really ties everything before we give the sources, is the whole Operation Varsity Blues. And it's funny, we wanted to make these episodes 15 minutes, and here we are. It's 42 <laughs> 43, 47. <laughs> it's over. It's over. Um, one thing I suggest you read up on and just look deeper into, because we're not going to get into it. Everyone's heard about Operation Varsity Blues with Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin, and about how they paid to get their children into prominent universities like USC, and I think Yale was one of them. I don't really know because I am not happy with that. But they, you know, have been in a huge high-profile case Legal about battle, yeah. their, yeah, about them being imprisoned and them be getting justice. But obviously, since they are affluent, they are white women um they are fine i think they may go to jail or may not for a few months or something like that um and you know we could go into even if that's okay with in terms of being jailed and about the prison industrial complex but just we're speaking in you know different terms here um they will be fine but tanya mcdowell from connecticut who wanted her children to get a better education based on, you know, redlining and the education system and how better schools are in certain areas, um, still in prison. And it was like, oh, nope, you sent your children to a different school district. You are in prison. There was no if and or buts. And, and it's like, what's, who she's did a black she woman. harm? Like, who did she harm in doing that? There was literally yep. no harm. Just really, it's all... Every decision people really make when they have kids is based on giving their children the best life. That's why people come or immigrate different places. And, you know, and that's what Felicity and Lori were trying to do. But, like, why did they get different treatment? Oh, because they're white. Anyway, sorry. We just want to want to say that for for important. the reading and it really shows you the difference in treatment between people and in terms of access to education yeah absolutely and if you want to learn more um about anything we talked about or just honestly um take advantage of if you have um free a little bit of free time even on the weekends or anything and you're looking um to just learn more about the lovely social determinants of health or anything in between, uh, we're here to recommend uh, some different ways that, some different accessible uh, learning options for you. Um, Libby is an incredible library app. I am obsessed with it. Um, I just, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Basically, um, you do need a library card, which are um, usually low cost, I believe, um, under $10 yeah. or so. And I think some um, libraries are letting you apply online, so you don't oh, have to Oh, I didn't to know that. That's incredible. I don't know if that's everywhere. Yeah. yeah it's awesome. You, so you put in like your, um, your, it's basically you get a library experience on your phone, completely digital. Um, and Libby connects you to your local library. So you punch in your library card and your PIN number that comes with the library card. And you have access to thousands and thousands of books. Um, they have, like, really incredible books on there. Like, they have, like, a lot of recent releases. I read Becoming by Michelle Obama and Educated by Tara Westover, both on Libby. Um, and I had, like, they sometimes do, like, lucky days where you, there's no wait or anything like that. You just get access to it immediately. So I was able to do that. They also have audiobooks for, um, to be more accessible as well. 
I love a good audiobook. Um, and then LinkedIn has Linda, um, which could be um, accessed through public library websites. So your public library will also have different learning websites like Linda, which teaches you different skills um, or just talks about different topics. Um, like your library pays for subscriptions to these sites. Um, Hoopla is another one, is another audiobook, I believe, uh, website. Like your, your library pays yearly subscriptions for its um, members to take part in these things. Which essentially is you paying for it because it's your tax dollars. So yeah. get your money. Yes, absolutely. And then Coursera, which we're going to link all these below, um, has free courses to learn as well. Um, and I know Yale was doing, Yale and Harvard were talking about, well, they have it, but they have online courses as well. Um, you do it at your own pace. Um, it's like usually they, they're kind of like the length of a summer course for people familiar with um, higher education. So like six to eight weeks usually. But some of them could be three courses. Some of them could be 20, three classes. I mean, some of them could be 20 classes. Definitely check all those out. Um, you know, learning is not limited to any age. It's not limited to any ability. Um, it's not limited to any just educational level. Um, it's such a wonderful thing that I treasure and I know Christy treasures it as well and that's why we've created this podcast is to teach hopefully teach you something new so if you've made it this far um thank thank you you. (laughs) we really appreciate everybody um giving us such incredible support and Christy you want to close this out yeah and I think I said this in the last episode but obviously we didn't touch on everything Um, Like, I'm thinking now, like, language is a huge barrier for education in the United States because we are very, um, you know, English-centered, even though that's not really the language that everyone speaks all the time here, um, and our education is centered around English, so that's something important to think about, but these are topics, like we said, education, physical and environmental environment, it's all rooted and leads to better health outcomes, Um, And so like how health is always changing, as we've seen during this pandemic, um, we will always be iterating on these different topics and adding to them. And we'd love your input. So if we miss something or you'd like us to elaborate on one thing we were talking about, we will, of course, do that in the future. So thank you so much for listening. And yeah, follow us at the triage to get some shareable infographics to put on your Instagram story or, you know, help educate your friends about what we talked about. Yeah, and just a quick shout out to our lovely co-host, Rachna. We miss her with all our heart. She is kicking butt studying for her board exams, and she'll be with us soon. So keep her in your thoughts. She's doing amazing things. Um, She is starting her residency soon, I believe, um, which is so exciting. I can't believe she's already halfway through medical school. I'm so proud of her. We're we're so proud of her. Yeah, so just wanted to give her a little shout out too. She's furthering her education and we couldn't be more proud of her. Yep. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye.